be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 16. Would you join me in prayer as we open our service together? Father, thank you so much for this day, another Lord's Day, a chance to gather as your body, to engage in worship and to open your word together. And so, Lord, we do quiet our hearts. Um, as we come before your word, we acknowledge that it is from you, it is inspired by you, and it is truth and a guide for how we ought to live. And so, Lord, we do expect your spirit to help us as we read it today, um, open our eyes, help us to understand it, um, but more importantly, help us to apply it to our lives so that we can live in such a way that is more faithful to you, more consistent with who you would have us to be. And Father, we pray that that would be done in response to just the incredible work that you have done in our lives out of gratitude for the salvation that you've given us um, in response to that. So we thank you for this time, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you I know are familiar with the acronym FOMO. FOMO stands for the fear of missing out. And this is a condition that is generally uh, had by extroverts, where they watch uh, a fun thing happening or their friends going and doing something in the culture, um, and they feel anxiety if they're not invited along to participate um, in this event. So uh, as I was studying and preparing for the sermon this week, I came across another term that's similar to FOMO. And instead of FOMO, it's FOGO. And FOGO stands for the fear of getting old. <laughs> the fear of getting old. So yeah, we'll have a FOGO awareness seminar, I'm sure, at some point, help all of us identify those practices in our own lives. But it's no secret, right, that we're afraid of getting old, that as a culture, we're afraid of getting old. <clears throat> the anti-aging business is estimated to be valued at about $92 billion globally. Now, that's an estimate because, you know, what product do you really count as anti-aging or, or not, right? So that's an estimate. The U.S. portion of that $92 billion is $18 billion dollars that we spend a year on anti-aging products. It's estimated that about 62% of Americans use anti-aging products, but here's the kicker. For millennials, so that's my generation, the age that they, on average, started using anti-aging products is 25. 25. So, I mean, at, at 33, I'm over the hill, right? You might as well just cash it in. But 25, right? At 25, we feel like we're old enough and showing our age enough that we have to start using products to help mitigate that. Now, I'm not here to convict you or to say anything about whether you use those products or not or if that's sinful. But just that fact, right? The fact that we as a culture uh, are so addicted to that idea of youth or trying to recapture and keep that image of youthfulness in our own lives, I think, shows us something within our own hearts, right? It shows a tendency we have to emphasize this life, the life that we have here, sometimes at the cost of the life that is to come. And we find all of our hope, all of our satisfaction and our happiness from what we can have in this life, rather than focusing on the hope that we have in the life to come. And that's exactly what Paul talks about to the Corinthian church in this passage, not anti-aging products, but that tendency within the human heart to emphasize the things that we can experience in this life 
at the expense of the hope that we have in the life to come. And as Paul walks through this passage, his point with the church at Corinth is to orient them not just on what this life can offer, but to orient them on the hope of eternity, that whatever this life can offer is a mere shadow of what we have to look forward to for all of eternity. And so as we look at this passage, our theme as we go through it will be that believers seek to be pleasing to our God by having our focus on eternity. We seek to be pleasing to our God by having our focus on eternity. That's Paul's point as he works through this passage. So with that, we pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul begins with a very familiar phrase, and it's very familiar because we started with this exact same phrase last Sunday, therefore, we do not lose heart. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. It's the exact same theme. And so last week we talked about the fact that as believers we are encouraged, we do not lose heart because of the hope of the resurrection, because of this hope of eternity that we have. And so we have this treasure in jars of clay. And so we walk through this life feeling the affliction of this life and feeling the pain and the suffering of this life, but we are not discouraged because we have the hope of the resurrection. And so Paul returns to a very similar phrase where he reminds them again, therefore, do not lose heart. Do not be discouraged. So what exactly is Paul pointing to that might discourage the Corinthians in this passage? Let's read a little bit further. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So the specific occurrence that could discourage the Corinthian church is the fact that the outer man is decaying. Well, what does Paul mean when he says the outer man? Well, he is talking about our earthly bodies. It really is no more complicated than that. If you look at the Greek and you do a careful word study, you're going to find out that that really just means the outer man, the body. That's what he's talking about. Our bodies are decaying. They are breaking down. And so this piggybacks off what he talked about in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where we are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed, we are persecuted, and we are struck down. And so as we go through this life, we will experience that affliction and suffering in this physical body. And the result of that is our physical bodies wear away, they break down. And that breaking down, that decaying, can cause discouragement, right? To decay here means to corrupt, it means to rot, it means to decompose. And so every day our bodies move one step closer to the grave, right? How's this for a nice uplifting sermon this morning? Yeah, you're welcome, you're welcome. Yeah, go home and take a multivitamin, it'll be fine. So every day we move one step closer to the grave, but everything in this world, everything in this world decays and rots, right? Our bodies aren't any different from that, that's the... the a part of sin and the curse and everything. When I first moved to Texas, I was made aware of a particular tree that Texans love, and it's called the Bodark tree. 
Anybody heard of the Bodark tree? Yes, all right, good. Donna has. So that, right. So the Bodark tree um, is known for these enormous apples that it produces. They're non-edible, um, but they actually have the ability to cause a concussion if you happen to be standing under one and they fall on you, right? Which everything's bigger in Texas, right? Even our junk apples. Um, but the, the wood of the Bodark tree is incredibly hard. It's been measured and compared to ceramics, and the hardness of the Bodark tree is as hard as ceramic material. So you can imagine when you're trying to cut through that with a chainsaw, how long and how many blades it takes to get through um, a trunk of that tree. So as a result, it's incredibly heavy. But the initial use for this tree was it was used by the pioneers in Texas to build their foundations. They would build their um, uh, cabins out of logs, but they would build bricks. They would carve bricks out of these bodark trees, and they would use that as the foundation. And the reason was it took so long for the bodark tree to decay that this would be a solid foundation for the house. But the bad news is even bodark trees eventually decay. You may not feel like it, but they do eventually decay. And everything in this life is on the process of decay. And as a result, as we walk and live in this life, that can cause discouragement. All right, Paul, so if, if that knowledge that we're all decaying and decomposing, even as we stand here, if that can cause discouragement, what should be the thing that causes us encouragement? Look at what he says. Though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, if you're into underlining in your Bible, um, or, or if you want a, an important takeaway for this morning, I think this phrase is one of the most significant phrases that we will cover in the book. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. So the certainty of our physical decay, the certainty of the fact that we are wearing away um, on a daily basis, is contrasted by our inner man. So that inner man is our relationship with the Lord. It's that union we have with Christ that communicates our salvation to us, that gives us our identity and our purpose in the Lord. And Paul says, in contrast to the outer man that is decaying, that inner man is being renewed day by day. To be renewed means to be restored, to be made new. And so I love that picture. As as the frustrations and the stress and the afflictions of this life wear away at you and they wear you down, we feel that even in the inner man. But our inner man doesn't stay worn down and discouraged and afflicted because Christ restores us. Christ makes us new. Isn't that a wonderful picture? And so <clears throat> there is nothing else in this life that can provide that encouragement that can provide that restoration outside of Christ. It is only through Him that you can experience that kind of encouragement and restoration. And if you think about this picture, it's like many of the things we've talked about. We've talked about the fact that Christ is a refuge, and that means He protects us in the midst of the storm. And so many times we wish the Lord would just take the storm away, right? We don't want a refuge. We want Him to take the storm away. But what He promises us is that in the midst of the storm, I will protect you. And I think the same thing is true with this idea of renewing us. We don't want to deal with the stress and the affliction and the difficulty of this life, right? We wish the Lord would just make a fence around us and keep all of that bad stuff away. But that's not what he does. 
He allows us to feel the stress and the affliction and the conflict of this life, but he promises to restore us. Isn't that beautiful? And so that's what it means to walk with our Lord. And that's why we are not discouraged. If we didn't have that promise, if we didn't have that hope, then this life would be miserable. It would be discouraging. But we, of all people, have this hope. We have the hope that Christ restores us every day. Did you catch that? He doesn't just make you new once. It's an everyday thing. And God could have done that. He could have given you enough to make you new for all time, but he commits to on a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment basis restoring you and making you new. Isn't that beautiful? That's who our God is, and that's what it means to walk with him. So our inner man is being renewed, and that is why we are not discouraged. And then Paul proceeds on to give us further commentary on it. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So what does he mean by this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory? Well, notice, first of all, just the progression of that sentence. Affliction produces glory. So we'll talk about the descriptors there, but first, look at what, ha- what he's saying there. The affliction that we experience in this life produces the glory of eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. And so the affliction of this life should be welcomed because it produces that eternal glory that we have to look forward to. But then notice the way he describes these things. Momentary light affliction produces an eternal weight of glory. Now, we've spent a lot of time in 2 Corinthians talking about the afflictions that Paul has faced, right? Now, as an objective observer, would any of you describe what Paul has gone through as momentary or light? No. No. As an objective observer, what Paul has gone through is terrible. It's miserable. He said he's been persecuted within an inch of his life. We just went through that list again of of persecuted and struck down and all of those things. I don't think any objective observer would say, yeah, Paul, you've had a pretty light go of it. I don't think you've experienced much suffering. So why does Paul say that what he's experienced is momentary light affliction? Is he just lying? Why does he say it that way? Well, the reason he speaks this way is not because he's belittling what he's gone through. And none of us should belittle the suffering that God has called us to go through either. But what he's doing is showing us a perspective. The suffering of this life in perspective to the eternal glory that we have is but a light momentary affliction. When you look at the suffering of this life through the lens of eternity, when you understand the joy that is set before us, then anything we have to go through in this life is momentary light affliction. And so he's not minimizing what he has to go through. He's simply looking at it with the perspective of eternity and saying, knowing the glory that is before us, anything we have to go through here is momentary light affliction. So momentary means that it has an end point. At some point, it's going to end. And worst case scenario, right, 
If we're afflicted with something for our entire lives, it's only 80 years, right? I mean, that's all we're talking about. And we have eternity ahead of us. So I think we can put up with something for 80 years, right? If we have eternity before us. I'm hoping it's less than that. Maybe like 65. And then I can go be with Jesus. But it's momentary. It has an end point, right? It's light. And light means that it's, it's trivial. It's insignificant in Paul's estimation. It's something he, he treats as, as banal even in his own life. In comparison to what he has for eternity, this affliction is momentary and it is light. Now, often in our own estimation, we reverse these things, right? So notice the contrast that he does. It's very intentional. The affliction we go through is momentary and it is light. The glory that we receive is eternal and it is a weight. And often we reverse those things, right? We think the suffering and the hardship that we're going through must be eternal. That it's going to last forever. And we think it is the hardest thing that we've ever gone through. And I'm speaking from experience. I've thought that, right? And we do that because we think lightly of the glory that is coming. And we treat eternity as a trivial thing because all we can think about is the suffering that we're going through today. But what is accurate and how believers ought to think about these things is exactly the way Paul speaks. In comparison to what is awaiting us in eternity, what we go through in this life is momentary and it is light affliction. And so we have an eternal weight of glory waiting for us that is far beyond all comparison. And I just want you to pause on that phrase. Far beyond all comparison. Can anyone tell me what that means? Far beyond all comparison. We say that and we read that like it's, like it's a normal phrase. But when you really try to define that, what does that mean? Well, this phrase itself is a smoothed out version of what Paul actually said. His actual words there say, surpassing that which surpasses. That's gibberish, okay? That is gibberish. It's okay to say that. Surpassing that which surpasses. What does that even mean? Well, the word for surpass means to overthrow. And overthrow as in, you know, you're thrown to first base and you throw beyond the first baseman, right? And normally that's a negative thing. You're trying to hit the first baseman. But when we're thinking about the glory of God, think about the picture that that paints. This, this is what you think the glory of God is going to be like. This is the target you have for God's glory. And guess what? He overthrows it. It goes far beyond what you could imagine. Not just goes beyond, but it surpasses that which is surpassing. It goes beyond what you could even imagine. So whatever you think the glory of God is going to be, whatever you think is waiting for you in eternity, it's even better than you can possibly imagine. It goes far beyond all measure. And so when we know that that is what is waiting for us, when we know that that is what glory will be for his people, then we can endure the momentary light affliction that God has called us to endure. Amen? So he goes on in, in verse 5, chapter 5, I'm sorry, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 together. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, 
longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. We're going to focus on verses 1 and 2 primarily here, because verses 3 through 5, I think, are just an interpretation or some commentary on the principles that he lays out in verses 1 and 2. So he talks about two types of buildings. So we compared the outer man and the inner man, and now he compares an earthly tent with a heavenly building. Okay? And so obviously these aren't literal buildings that he's talking about. These are metaphors. The earthly tent is a metaphor for our physical body. And the heavenly building is a metaphor for our eternal glorified bodies. And so he's drawing a comparison between these two things. So if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. Now this idea of being torn down is a euphemism for death. The idea that your tent is torn down and, and someday your body will be torn down. Okay? But this gets to the point of why Paul uses a tent to describe our earthly body. Because tents are always temporary dwelling places, right? They are put up with the intention that we will tear them down and move somewhere else. Even in cultures where they live in tents all of the time, they don't live in that tent in the same place. They're moving the tent around to different places, and so it's always designed to be a temporary, transitory dwelling place. How much trouble do you get in if you try to take a tent and make it your permanent dwelling place? That's going to cause a lot of problems, right? And so that's how our bodies are described. From the outset, our bodies are defined and designed not to be permanent dwelling places. God designed and equipped us with a temporary house that we live in in this life. That's what our bodies are. And we are always prone to try to take this temporary house, and and you can even think about this life that we have, this temporary life that God has given us, and make it our all, and make it permanent, and put all of our identity and purpose in it. But that would be just as foolish as making a tent your permanent dwelling place, right? And so if our earthly bodies are these temporary dwelling places, if they're earthly tents, let's look at the building That awaits for us. So notice first, it's described as a building. In comparison to the tent that is our body, this temporary structure made of fabric and poles and string, we have a structure that is firm and solid and real that is waiting for us in eternity. That's our heavenly body. And so we are abandoning the tent and we are moving into a permanent heavenly structure. It's eternal. So just as the tent is a temporary structure, the structure we have in heaven is an eternal structure. It's never going to be destroyed. It's never going to go away. It is an eternal house from our God. And then notice how it is made. Not made with human hands. And this plays on on a whole slew of other passages throughout the Bible where Things that God values are made with His hands. He doesn't entrust men to construct these things, but He forms and crafts them. And so the body that awaits you in heaven has been designed by the master craftsman Yahweh Himself. Does that sound like a superior dwelling place? 
so much better than the temporary tent in which we dwell, right? And yet we are prone, aren't we? We're prone to try and squeeze as much life and vitality as we can out of this body, to try and make this body everything that we could possibly desire. And of course, our bodies are gifts from the Lord. These are incredible things that He has designed for us. And so we are to steward these bodies to glorify God, and yet we are always to long for that heavenly body. And that's where He goes next. Verse 2, for indeed in this house, in this earthly tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And so our earthly existence is an existence of groaning. Groaning is an involuntary utterance of displeasure. It's the sound I make every time I hear Taylor Swift on the radio. I just, I can't help it, right? It just comes out of me right? And so it's that groan, that involuntary utterance of displeasure. That's what this groaning is. And we have a sense of that in this life, don't we? We groan walking around in this existence. Part of, part of that is our physical groaning, right? I mean, we joke about our bodies breaking down and decaying, but they are, and they do groan. They make noises they didn't used to make, Right? Our bodies are wearing out and breaking down, and so we have that sense of groaning that comes from this physical body wearing out. But I think there's a much bigger picture that Paul is painting here. I think this idea of groaning is how he views all of earthly life, the best that this life can offer, the best that you can pursue, and the the happiest you can be here is still just groaning in comparison to what awaits us in eternity. And so our earthly life, our existence on this planet, is to embrace groaning. There is a deep discontentment and dissatisfaction that we all feel as we walk in this life. And we all have a sense of it, don't we? Now, as I interact with all of you, I I find you all to be incredibly content people with how God has called you in this season of life. And so I'm not talking about the contentment that Christ provides within this life. But we all have a sense of the discontentment and dissatisfaction that we have from just walking in this life, right? We weren't made to only live here. This life does not satisfy us or give us contentment. We were made for something more. We were made for a relationship with our Creator. And so, no matter how good your job is on this life, it won't satisfy you the way your relationship with God will. No matter how much money you make on this life, it won't satisfy you because you need that relationship with your Creator. No matter how great your marriage is, no matter how wonderful your family is, no matter how how many wonderful experiences and possessions you have, none of that will satisfy you because in this life, we groan. We are dissatisfied with this earthly life. And the thing I want you to understand is that God designed it that way. We are intended to groan in this life on purpose. We are intended to feel discontent and dissatisfied with this life. And the reason for that is so that we long for eternity. Do you hear how he says that in verse 2? In this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling in heaven. 
That is our condition in this life. We groan here so that we long for eternity. Isn't that amazing? And so as we come face to face with with the discontentment and the dissatisfaction and the frustration of living in this life, I don't want you to minimize that because perhaps that dissatisfaction and discontentment is God-given. Perhaps that's actually a gift of His grace that is driving you to eternity and driving you to find fulfillment and satisfaction in Him. And so if you find yourself in a position where you are discontent and dissatisfied, perhaps that is from the Lord, and He is driving you deeper and closer to Himself and drawing you in to Him, knowing that He is the only thing that can provide you with contentment and satisfaction. And so as Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, that is his fear. His fear is that they are missing out on the hope of eternity because they are satisfied with the mundane things of this life. And so his, his call to them is not to be satisfied with the skills or the talents or the things that they can develop in this life, but instead to find their hope in eternity. And so as we conclude, how are we any different than than a philosopher who says there's just no meaning in life and there's no purpose to what we do. Where's the hope for believers as we walk through this life? What kind of purpose do we have in this life? Is there any meaning that can be found if this life is simply a collective groaning as we long for eternity? Well, that's the beauty of being a Christian. We long for heaven and we groan for eternity But there is great purpose and meaning even in our lives now. Let's pick up in verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him." For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so as we think about this theme that Paul is developing, right, we are pleasing to the Lord by having our focus on eternal things. Right here, he spells out for us what that pleasing nature is. What does it mean to be pleasing to the Lord? Verse 9 says, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. When we think of ambition, we think of career goals, we think of family goals, we think of monetary goals. How many of us have it as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord? That that would drive every decision and every thought of our minds and every decision of our lives to be pleasing to the Lord. You know, as we approach every decision, as we approach every action, we really have two choices. We can choose what is pleasing to me, what is pleasing to myself, or we can choose what is pleasing to the Lord. In every action, really your choices boil down to those two things. There's an action that is pleasing to the Lord and an action that is pleasing to me. And so at times, and I'm guilty of this just as much as as anyone, at times we choose the option that is pleasing to me, the option that is selfish, that maybe has the least resistance, or the one that I think will make me feel better. 
But this is why Paul has spent all of this time building up this context in this passage. Because when I choose the option that is pleasing to me, I'm choosing the earthly tent. I'm choosing the groaning of this life, and I'm choosing the outer man that is decaying. And when I choose to please my heavenly Father, I'm choosing instead to focus on that eternal ambition. I'm focusing on that hope of eternity. And so if those things are real and true for me, then I will choose the thing that is pleasing to my God. And so the conclusion, if, if all of this is true, if, these, if in these bodies we grow, if this is a temporary dwelling place, then the conclusion for all of us should be, our desire should be to please the Lord. We please the Lord by growing in personal holiness. The way in which you and I glorify God is by growing in our personal progressive sanctification. We please the Lord by obeying Him. That's really what it boils down to. And so I love that Paul has talked about all of this, this deep theology, talking about dwelling places and the eternal weight of glory. And at the end of it all, it just boils down to you need to obey God. You need to obey God. The most important thing in your life, the thing that's more important than, than all of the skills that you can develop, all of the money that you can make, is that at the end of the day, you would be pleasing to your heavenly Father, that you would walk in obedience to Him. That should be our ambition. And so he provides this, this context then with the, the Bema seat judgment. This is not the great, great white throne judgment. I can speak most of the time. This isn't where some people are being given life and others are given death and hell, but this is a judgment of believers, just those who are in heaven. And it's a judgment based on the works that we have done in this life. And so this life is not meaningless. The things that we do in this life do contribute to eternity. But we live in this life in such a way that we reap those benefits in eternity. And so we do have purpose. There is meaning in this life, but there's only purpose and meaning that's found in pleasing the Lord, our Savior. You will not find meaning in any of the selfish pursuits of this life. You will only find it in obedience to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this passage. Um, there are so many rich truths in it and so much encouragement. We're grateful even for the fact that you promised to renew us day by day. As we face the frustrations and the difficulties of this life, we do so with the sure and solid knowledge that you restore and encourage us and give us the strength for each new day. And so, Father, we pray for that strength to be true in our lives as we go forward in this time. As we seek to be pleasing to you and to have that as our ambition, would you give us the strength and the ability to do that this week and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.